She must not eat or drink. She must not eat or drink anything. One more time for the people in the back. In case you forgot, don't eat or drink anything in this room. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to uh, our International Film Festival. We're back at it again this week. It's basically con. I mean, so many of the movies that we've done did premiere there. Mm -hmm. Including the one that we're going to cover today. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Well, should we just get right into it? Let's tell the people. Let's freaking tell them. This movie, I feel like people have talked about it. I don't know if it's been specifically requested, but it's definitely been either in the DMs or like... People have definitely mentioned it. So today we are talking about the 2006 Spanish language classic, Pan's Labyrinth. Wow. So this is a first time watch for me, but I will say I was very, very familiar with the distinct horrific image of the pale man Mm. because back in the day, in my Tumblr days, uh, one of my mutuals, one of my online friends, uh, that was her her icon, her thumbnail photo was (laughs) the pale man with his hands. So like every time we would message, I'd just be like, oh my god, this is so horrific. That was a scary image. Mm -hmm. Um, I was definitely viewing that and being like, Will I get sleep tonight? Will I not get sleep tonight? Mm-hmm. Um, and I I had thought that I had seen this movie before, but I actually had just seen another Spanish language movie around the same era mm. that also had to do with um, like stories and stuff, but it was not this movie. And it was much darker than I expected. Yeah. But it was really interesting And I think, like, Guillermo del Toro just has these amazing visions for his films. Just unbelievable specificity and detail. Yeah, he's truly, like, a master at at world building. Yeah. And we were talking about this off mic before we started, like, how difficult that is to do to imagine an entire world the way that he does with so many Mm -hmm. little details. And, um, yeah, so good. So like let's let's get into the numbers. Let's throw, let's throw some numbers at you. I'm gonna throw the numbers. Just throw, <laughs> throw them I'm gonna right slam at you. them in your face. <laughs> so the budget for Pan's Labyrinth was 19 million dollars. I guess that's somewhere in the range of like it's honestly not that much no. for a film of this caliber, but it's also not like you know skeleton budget. Mm-hmm. But they made 83.6 million in the box office. So. Incredible return. Yeah. This movie is also definitely like, I remember during high school, and I went to high school between 2010 and 2014, this was the edgy people's favorite movie. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like you ask the kind of alt person who oh, yeah. doesn't really fit in. You're like, oh, it's your favorite movie. And they're like, oh, Pan's Labyrinth, obviously. Of course. <laughs> the symbolism. Are you kidding? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um. So... To dive into kind of the conception of this film, uh, as we mentioned, directed, written by Guillermo del Toro, and he actually got the idea for the fawn, um, who the fawn's name is not actually, it's not Pan in like the original movie, but they ended up using the title Pan's Labyrinth for like some other countries just because 
the image of the fawn and the character fano is not really like super resonant in all cultures and countries whereas mm-hmm. pan is you know a greek god who people are more familiar with and is also a fawn like figure but he got the idea for this fawn character from his childhood experiences with lucid dreaming ah uh. So as a kid, every night at midnight, he would wake up and he would see a fawn gradually step out from behind the grandfather's clock in his room. Is that not the scariest thing you've ever heard? Terrifying. And I feel like also very much a creepy, spooky kid Mm -hmm. vibes. Absolutely. Haunted child vibes. Right, right. Going back before this film was even shot, uh, Sergei Lopez, who played Captain Vidal in the film, said that Del Toro described the final version of the plot a year and a half before they began filming. And it was like a two and a half hour explanation, you know, all the details, just an incredibly robust retelling of the plot. And when he was done, Lopez was like, do you have a script? And he was like, no, nothing's written yet. (laughs) (laughs) Like just all from the dome, Mm -hmm. like completely detailed and specific. And Lopez agreed to act in the film and then received the script one year later. And he said it was exactly the same. It was incredible. In his little head, he had all the history with a lot of little detail, a lot of characters. Like now when you look at the movie, it was exactly what he had in his head which is spectacular. Not only does he have the creative like juice to come up with the idea, but then to bring that to screen and actually exact it in the way that he wanted to, like obviously that's the mark of an amazing director to be able to really translate it the way you had envisioned. Definitely. Yeah. And that's something that I always really respect and something that I often look for in directors of movies that I watch is people who have such a specific vision like I love it when people make bold choices or they go for like a very specific style things that are really stylized that Mm -hmm. I always really gravitate towards because that's why you love Baz Luhrmann exactly like I love people who are like (laughs) this is what I do this is who I am it may be a little kooky it may be a little out there but I love like a really strong vision Um, and this movie definitely had it it's something like I've been thinking about this movie a lot in the few days since I watched it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, to me, that's always a mark of a good movie when you can't really get it out of your head. No, absolutely. And something I also appreciated is that it felt like every moment of the film had a purpose mm-hmm. because there are some um, like fighting scenes. And I was thinking about like your, your fight, <laughs> My fight, scene fight blindness. blindness. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And I was like, but honestly, even in the moments where they are, shooting at each other Mm -hmm. I do feel like he adds these little details like the way that um Vidal like will cock his gun or Mm -hmm. look at his watch or progress forward toward the enemy it's so calculated that you're actually learning more about the character exactly and it's less about the fighting and the shooting and everything Mm -hmm. there's like very purposeful storytelling in everything Um, So that way it feels like it's actually progressing a narrative, whereas a lot of other fight scenes don't necessarily in some other films, but (laughs) we won't say their names. No, 
not gonna, I'm gonna throw anyone under the bus. But <laughs> 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 oh, so as we mentioned, this movie also premiered at Cannes Film Festival, and it received a 22-minute standing ovation, which was the longest wow. in the festival's history. I'm like, that sounds cool, but thinking about it, like, in real life, like, thinking about people doing that, that for annoying. 22 mis- minutes, yeah, <laughs> that sounds, like, so annoying. I would hate to be just, like, somebody's date, like, at this premiere, and you're just like, like oh, that was good, <sighs> and then you have to clap for 22 22 minutes minutes. that's a long time yeah and i i think i've said this on the pod um like a while ago but i remember when like the whale came out and Mm -hmm. people were talking about how it had a really long standing ovation and i was like i want to be a boo bird at con (laughs) like if i go to con not every movie is good. Like I'm going to fucking boo at some, like that's just how it should be. Because if you're going to stand that long and clap for people, you have to boo for people too. Like it just has to be fair. You have to be honest about your opinion. And I'm just so over it. Cause didn't like the idol pilot also get like a super long standing ovation like that. Yeah. And I'm like, come on people. (laughs) The thing I can't stand is in a theater, like on Broadway, Mm-hmm. when a show is not that good and one person like stands and then another person stands and then it's like yeah also no sh- no tino shade to people who come into town who are not from new york and see the theater but you do not have to stand okay yeah. that's a personal like if someone feels moved to stand but if you do not feel moved don't feel obligated to stand and clap for it's someone the peer pressure of the standing ovation oh yeah absolutely mm-hmm. It it just it feels performative at a certain point where it's like, all right, we get it. It's amazing or whatever. Let's all save 20 minutes of our lives and get this show right. on the road. <laughs> exactly. So the last little tidbit we have, and I wanted to include this because there are so many like parallels of symbolism to hell and to heaven and like Catholicism in the movie and del toro himself has said that he considers pan's labyrinth a truly profane film a layman's riff on catholic dogma but that his friend alejandro gonzalez Inaritu described it as a truly catholic film and to that he said del toro said once a catholic always a catholic He also admits that the pale man's preference for children rather than the feast in front of him is intended as a criticism of the Catholic Church. And there's a scene where a priest is visiting and he says, remember, my sons, you should confess what you know because God doesn't care what happens to your bodies. He already has your souls. And that sentiment of like, what happens to your bodies, he's already saved your souls, was actually a quote from a real priest who offered communion to political prisoners during the Spanish Civil War. So whether or not it's something that he intended to do, there's just like a ton of Catholic symbolism in the movie Mm -hmm. and allusions to the Bible, which, you know, we'll get further into while we talk about it. Yeah, definitely. He he uses a lot of different references, obviously. Um, a big one is fascism. This is like in the wake mm-hmm. of the Spanish Civil War. There's a dictatorship that's happening in Spain at the time. 
as well as the religious elements. And there's also like elements borrowed from other cultures in terms of the monsters. Like the pale man is actually modeled after a Japanese like fable of um, like a monster that has eyes on its hands. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was cool to like pull so many different references. Yeah, absolutely. And it definitely added to the fairy tale element of it. Mm-hmm. Well, before we dive in, we just want to remind you about our Patreon, which this mm-hmm. month uh, we covered the wonderful film Whip It, which was super fun. And next month, uh, I can confirm we will be covering a Halloween classic yet to be determined by the poll. Ooh. So if you want to get in there for the end of the month, cast your vote for our October bonus episode feel free to check out our Patreon. It's $5 a month. You get a bonus episode. You get a bunch of other cool perks. One of my favorites being our Discord, where we get to all just chat and shoot the shit. So, Love the Discord. Feel free to check it out if you're interested. Yeah. And I guess should we just step down the spiral staircase into it? (laughs) Descend into a mystical, magical world. Mm-hmm. Yes. The opening to the film, we hear shaky breath, the sound of someone humming, and we see it's Spain, 1944. The Civil War is over. Hidden in the mountains, armed men are still fighting the new fascist regime. Military posts are established to exterminate the resistance. And we see a young girl, Ophelia, laying on the ground, breathing heavily. Her hand is covered in blood, and her nosebleed is actually trickling in reverse back into her nose. And then we hear a narration that says, A long time ago, in the underground world where there are no lies or pain, There lived a princess who dreamt of the human world. She dreamt of blue skies, soft breeze, and sunshine. One day, eluding her keepers, the princess escaped. Once outside, the bright sun blinded her and erased her memory. She forgot who she was and where she came from. Her body suffered cold, sickness, and pain, and eventually she died. However, her father, the king, always knew that the princess's soul would return, perhaps in another body, in another place, at another time, and he would wait for her until he drew his last breath, until the world stopped turning. So we then cut to Ophelia, who is in a car with her mother, Carmen, and Ophelia is reading her storybook about the princess. And Carmen says she doesn't understand why Ophelia had to bring so many books. They're going to be outdoors all the time in the country. And Carmen tells her that she's too old to be filling her head with fairy tales. Then Carmen kind of gets like suddenly very ill. So the driver has to stop the car so she can get out, get some fresh air. And that's when we learn that she is very pregnant. Huge. So (laughs) Ophelia... Huge. (laughs) I just didn't expect it because she looks so tiny and then she stands up and she has like a gigantic belly. Yeah, because she does look... Uh, she looks a little like gaunt in the face. 
Yeah. So it is kind of jarring to see that she's pregnant, which also kind of teaches us that, like, she's not doing very well in this pregnancy. Like, no. Maybe some things might be wrong here. So mm-hmm. Ophelia looks around at the tall forest trees when she comes across a rock on the ground that has an eye carved into it. So she then sees in the distance a taller rock structure. So she walks over and sees that there's actually a carving on it and that small eye rock that she has found fits perfectly into this carving. So she places the eye in and that's when a winged bug (laughs) crawls out of its mouth and we're like, ooh, creepy. So... (laughs) Ophelia watches it fly away. She doesn't think it's creepy at all. She's actually in awe. And Carmen calls for her and Ophelia is like, oh my gosh, mom, I saw a fairy. But Carmen is like, Ophelia, you're going to get your shoes dirty. We got to get back in the car. So they get back in the car and she tells Ophelia that she needs to call the captain father when she meets him because he's been very good to them. And then we see the winged bug follow the car. Yes. So they arrive at their destination. The captain is looking at a stopwatch. He sees that they are 15 minutes late. They get out of the car. The captain greets Carmen and sees her pregnant belly. And then they move to the side to reveal a wheelchair that the doctor has brought out. Mm -hmm. He tells her that she needs to use it like the doctor doesn't want her to exert herself. It's unclear if this is because she's been having a hard pregnancy or if he's just that controlling Mm -hmm. that he's like, you need to like this pregnancy is your priority. Right. Yeah. So she does um, agree to sit in the wheelchair and she tells Ophelia to come out and he greets her She's holding her books to her chest, but reaches out her left hand. And instead of shaking it, he grabs it and tells her to use her other hand. Ugh. So he's a shithead. Yeah. Ophelia watches him go and then notices the fairy bug from earlier. And she tries to catch it, but it flies away. And she actually ends up running after it. Like, no one gives a fuck. (laughs) And she's just running away. Then Ophelia sees an archway. It's like a big stone archway in the distance and walks towards it and into what looks like a maze. She peers around a corner and Mercedes, one of the maids at the, they're really kind of at like um, a military outpost, I guess you could say, because they're right on the edge of the woods and it seems like there's, like, a lot of soldiers and stuff. Like, it doesn't look like a permanent Mm -hmm. residence, Yeah, like, they've been assigned to be there to, like, hunt down the the rebels in, like, the nearby woods. Exactly. So Mercedes comes after her and tells her it's a labyrinth, just a pile of old rocks that have always been there. And she tells her not to go in there and then notices her books – She's like, oh, did you read all of those? And then the captain calls out and Mercedes tells Ophelia her father needs her. And Ophelia's like, the captain isn't my father. My father was a tailor who died in the war. And Mercedes is like, okay, you've made that clear. And Ophelia's like, 
have you met my mom? She's beautiful, but that baby is making her sick. And again, we see this fairy insect creature um, watching Ophelia. Yeah, definitely. Like I was immediately endeared to Mercedes because she's the first person at this base camp who has shown any like kindness towards Ophelia, like the way that she is brutally like rejected by the captain when he's like oh you're the wrong hand to to greet me um yeah so like immediately i was like oh she's probably gonna die because like that always happens to characters that i love right um and also in case anybody's not like familiar with the concept of a labyrinth um i will read the dictionary definition for you which is a complicated irregular network of passages or paths in which it is difficult to find one's way also referred to as a maze love love so (laughs) (laughs) we then go to captain fidal who is conversing with his team about the uh guerrilla soldiers that are in the woods And they talk about how they're sticking to the woods because they know the terrain better than they do. So what his team needs to do is cut off their access. He wants to withhold food and medicine to make them come to them and also designate some areas to set up some new posts. This is overheard by Mercedes as she serves the men. And the captain also asks her to call the doctor. Mm -hmm. He has like a little map and he has these little... They look like game pieces to denote mm-hmm. the different outposts. And he's like, Aki, Aki, mm-hmm. Aki. <laughs> Boys and their toys. What are you going to do? Am I right? <laughs> um, I have so many. I think that the portrayal of Fidel was impeccable. Mm-hmm. Like he did such a great job. And the character is so neurotic. Like mm-hmm. the sheer um, – I don't know, like anger and and hatred and like just the most malicious energy. I feel like he really contained very well in the character that he built. Yeah, he created such a an evil, sinister person, mm-hmm. but it never felt caricature. Like it was so grounded, right? And I think there's a lot of layers and complexities to his his performance that. I feel like I need to do multiple watches of this movie where I like literally just focus on him Mm -hmm. to really like see them all. Yeah. There were so many, yeah, so many little um, kind of like windows into his psyche based Mm -hmm. off of texts that he had and things he did. Because not only is he like, you know, a very rich character in himself, but he also represents so much in this movie. So there's a lot there. So we go to the doctor who is giving Carmen some medicine. He says that it will let her sleep through the night. And he explicitly instructs her to only take two drops. And then he tells her just to call if she needs anything day or night, or her nurse, who is Ophelia. And Carmen asks Ophelia to turn off the light and close the door. So. In the hallway, Mercedes talks to the doctor and says that he needs help. He, we don't know who she's referring to yet, but this person, apparently their leg is getting worse 
and the doctor discreetly hands Mercedes a package and tells her that this is all he could get and apologizes. She tells him the captain is waiting for him in his office. And then Mercedes turns around and notices Ophelia has overheard everything. <gasps> oh, no. Yeah. So later that night, Carmen calls Ophelia into the bedroom. Ophelia gets into bed with her mom, and we hear the house creak, and Ophelia gets a little bit thrown, but her mom reassures her that it's just the wind. Nights here are different than in the city. Like there, you hear cars and the tramway, but here, houses are old, and they creak as if they were speaking. And I really love that line, like the idea of, um, you know, like history living in, in the architecture. Oh, um, yeah. I thought that was cool. Also, I don't think we mentioned this in the intro, but Guillermo del Toro actually wrote all of the English subtitles himself. So cool. The subtitles were baller. Yeah, they're so good. Like you can – I mean, obviously, I don't speak Spanish, but you can usually tell when English subtitles are kind of like a hack job. <laughs> and oh, yeah. I, I feel like they were they were extremely well written, which is of course going mm -hmm. to happen when it's literally from the mind who wrote the Spanish script. Yeah, the adjectives were still really robust, and there wasn't any convoluted sentence structure. Like it was, it was all very clear. Mm -hmm. So Carmen tells Ophelia that tomorrow she's going to give her a surprise, and Ophelia asks if it's a book, and Carmen says it's something much better. Mm -hmm. Ophelia then asks her mom why she had to get married to the captain, and Carmen says that she was alone for too long. But Ophelia says, you weren't alone. I was with you. Aw. And Carmen says, when she's older, she'll understand. Carmen then starts to, you know, feel a little sick again. So she asks Ophelia to tell her brother one of her stories to calm him. Ophelia tells him, she like leans on her mom's stomach and says, Many, many years ago, in a sad faraway land, there was an enormous mountain made of rough black stone. And we actually like go into the stomach and see this embryo of a baby. And then or we the go- The fetus, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the fetus. And then we go to this- um like mountain that she is describing and at sunset on top that mountain a magical rose blossomed every night that made whoever plucked it immortal but no one dared go near it because its thorns were full of poison and we again see the winged bug and she says men talked amongst themselves about their fear of death and pain but never the promise of eternal life. And every day the rose wilted, unable to bequeath its gift to anyone, forgotten and lost on top of that cold, dark mountain. We pan back into the bedroom to Ophelia and Carmen, and then to the captain in his study, fixing his pocket watch. And we hear it in the voiceover Ophelia say, forever alone until the end of time. This is the first, like, there. we'll see a lot throughout the movie, um, the use of, like, shifting color mm -hmm. to uh, aid the storytelling. But this is the first time we kind of go from this blue-toned, 
grayish kind of drain from life um, coloring that we get at the base camp into then the magical realm, the mythical realm, which has a lot more warm gold, yellow tones to it. Mm -hmm. So we then go back to the captain who is cleaning his pocket watch and he asks the doctor how Carmen is doing. And the doctor says she's very weak. So Captain Vidal says that he'll sleep down here to give her rest and asks about his son. Then a group of men walk in asking for the captain, but he has them wait so he can hear the doctor's reply. (laughs) And the doctor says that at the moment, there's no reason for alarm. Like your son is doing okay. He does mention though, that Carmen probably shouldn't have traveled so late in the pregnancy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She's uh, not doing too hot. But Captain Vidal says that a son should be born wherever his father is. That's all. So the captain turns to leave, but the doctor asks him one more question. What makes him think that the baby is a boy? And he literally just says, don't fuck with me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So in case you hadn't, you know, gleaned the fact that Captain Vidal is simply looking for an heir. There it is. Yes, he is clearly um, one thing in mind. Mm -hmm. And it also kind of makes me think that he knows he's going to die soon because Mm. he's so eager to have the son born. He also has a really big thing with time, with keeping track of time, Mm -hmm. maintaining his pocket watch. He's always checking the time. And we hear um, his pocket watch ticking as like a sign of him coming into a room and stuff. Yeah. So very interesting. Mm -hmm. We go to the other soldiers and the men tell Vidal that they detected gunfire in the Northwest Quadrant and they actually captured a suspect and his son. So this is like the middle of the night and the son is there. He's like, my father is an honest man. And someone hands the captain a gun and tells him they found it on the suspect and it was fired. Again, the son tries to defend his father and says he was just hunting. Vidal tells him to keep quiet and searches his dad's bag. He finds a book. It says, no God, no government, no master, which is like communist propaganda. And he continues to search through the bag. And the man tells him he just went into the woods to search for rabbits. His daughters are sick. And again, the son defends him. And that's when Vidal hits him with the bottle that he's holding that he found in his father's bag. And it's so – it's probably the the most gory part of the movie. He he keeps hitting him with the bottle until he kills him. And – Yeah. Oh, he like smashes his face in. It's a really mm -hmm. horrific image. And the father has to see his son be murdered. And he just deluses it. He's like, you're a murderer. You're a son of a bitch. And – Vidal then shoots him. And after they're both dead, Vidal walks up to one of the soldiers and continues searching in the bag and takes out a rabbit. And he tells one of them to search properly before he comes bothering him. So just off the bat, two lives, two innocent civilians killed. Mm -hmm. There's another detail that I noticed in here 
um, that, you know, I think is very telling how often this happens because uh, one of the military men, one of the doll's men is, you know, holding on to the the father. Mm-hmm. He's like standing behind him. And as soon as Vidal pulls the gun on him, he immediately steps away from being behind him. So, like, he doesn't potentially get the bullet if it, like, right. goes through and through in him. So, he's just, like, an instinct of, like, oh, he's about to kill him. Let me step out of the way. So, I don't mm-hmm. – so, I'm like, oh, this happens all the time. And Vidal is so unfeeling. He's mm-hmm. so gruesome. It just sucks all the air out of the room. Yeah. Even, they're outside, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Then, I know, we go back into the bedroom and that fairy bug keeps buzzing and Ophelia tells her mom she hears something, but Carmen is fast asleep. So Ophelia steps onto the floor and as like her toes basically just graze the rug and the bug flies by her feet so she gets back into bed and then the insect crawls up to her on the comforter. And she says hello and asks if it followed her and if she's a fairy. And then um, Ophelia actually opens up one of her books to show her what she's referring to about the fairy. And the bug then leans over and shape shifts and shifts into a small fairy and gestures to Ophelia to follow her. Yeah, the the fairies uh, I thought were really interesting the way that they look because they're not, you know, what one traditionally thinks of when they think of a fairy, which is all like Mm -hmm. beautiful and sparkly, sparkly. like these ones, their wings look like leaves. So there's a very Mm -hmm. heavy like nature element to them and their faces are kind of like distorted. Um, I think that – Del Toro kind of talks about how he wanted them to look like little monkeys or something like kind of abstract. That makes sense. I feel like in general, the fairy tale creatures, they weren't, I wouldn't consider them beautiful. Yeah. They were really interesting and semi creepy. Mm -hmm. And they actually made me feel like very stressed out when they would come to Ophelia. It felt like unsafe. Yeah, I feel like he kind of plays on, um, I guess, like, you know how an element of pretty privilege is that people, like, inherently trust you or they view you in a more positive light, whereas things that do not fit into that category are maybe seen as untrustworthy or mean or less worthy in any way. Um, But in actuality, these more grotesque-looking creatures are the most trustworthy out of anybody. Mm. So, Ophelia follows this fairy into the labyrinth. Mm -hmm. So, Ophelia is in this cavernous space underground, and she calls out, hello, hello. And that's when the winged creature lands on a stone. But the stone turns out to be another creature Similar to a satyr, but he's very, like, mossy and viney and looks like he's made of the earth um, with a goat's head and, like, a human-y, goaty, like, upright body. 
And he turns to Ophelia and tells her she's returned and asks her not to be frightened. And that's when he releases more fairies. And she tells him her name is Ophelia and asks who he is. And this was one of the first of so many red flags that I had for this character because he's like, you know, I have so many names. I am the mountain, the woods, the earth. He like does a little shudder, like a shake and tells her that he is a fawn, your most humble servant, your highness and bows. And he tells Ophelia she is the daughter of the king of the underworld. And Ophelia shakes her head and tries to tell him that her father was a tailor, but he insists that she wasn't born from a human. She was born from the moon. So he then tells her to look at her shoulder and she'll find a mark that proves it. Her real father had them open portals all over the world to allow her to return. And this is the last of them, this labyrinth here. But they'll have to make sure that her essence is intact and that she hasn't become a mortal. So in order to return home, she'll have to complete three tasks before the full moon, and he shows her the Book of Crossroads and tells her to open it when she's alone, and she'll know what she has to do. Mm -hmm. So Ophelia opens the book, but all the pages are blank. She looks up to see that she's completely alone in the labyrinth. Yes. The the character design, as we kind of mentioned, for the fawn is incredible initially he was actually supposed to be more like a traditional fawn like half man half goat but they actually altered it so that he had a like goat face and also was like completely made out of earth like we said there's moss and vines right and tree bark and del toro said that he became this mysterious semi-suspicious relic who gave both the impression of trustworthiness and many signs that warned someone to never confide in him at all yeah, definitely. The idea of a goat in general, I feel, is very like underworld, satanic type of thing, especially with um, because the horns. What's the star called? The like devilly star. It's like a. It's not a pendant. Pentagram. Hmm. Uh, the pentagram and the goat's head. I feel like is something I've seen of a uh, kind of like demonic symbolism. Mm-hmm. So I was suspicious. Yeah. Absolutely. Also, of course, have to mention that the fawn is played by the incredible Doug Jones, who uh, really just nails any sort of monster role that he's ever mm-hmm. involved in. You may recognize him from Hocus Pocus. Or the fish movie. Shape of Water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the fish movie. Yeah, he has like a very impressive filmography, his uh, mm-hmm. his body of work, but he has worked uh, quite a bit with Guillermo del-, del Toro in his other movies as well. That's so cool. So we go to Captain Vidal's study. He is listening to music and shaving his face. He shines his boots and he asks Mercedes to prepare the rabbits that they took off of the men that they just killed. So he can have them for dinner tonight. She inspects them, but tells them that they're too young, like the meat won't be very good. So he says to just use them for a stew. He then also tells her that the coffee is burnt and has her try it. He then puts his hand on her shoulder 
and tells her that she should keep an eye on that. And like, it's a very weird like power play thing. It's really like, yeah. I don't know what to make of that, but it was creepy. Yeah. So Mercedes goes to the kitchen, hands the rabbits to one of the cooks and tells the women that he didn't like the coffee. And they're like, oh, that Vidal, (sighs) he's so fussy. And she tells them that they'll need more beef and chicken. And they ask, you know, where are they supposed to find that? And she says, oh, just take it off the doctor's wife, the mayor's too. So Mm -hmm. they can really just go in and take whatever they want from people. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Later on, Mercedes and another woman fill um, the bath in Carmen's room with hot water. And Carmen tells Ophelia her father is hosting a dinner party tonight and shows her this really beautiful, like, emerald green dress that she had made for her and some beautiful, they look kind of like patent leather shoes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought this was really interesting because she also tells her earlier, she's like, oh, don't get your shoes dirty. And it felt like one of Carmen's, Carmen clearly loves her daughter, but it also seems like she did not want to be poor. And she really wanted to figure out a way that they didn't have to live in destitute, even if it meant kind of selling out to this awful man and bearing his child. Yeah, she definitely is a woman with um, not very many options. Obviously, like, there's just less rights and opportunities for women in the 40s in terms of Of working. Her husband has died in the war. She has a child, and she then meets this captain who has a lot of resources, probably was very Mm -hmm. charming when they first met. Isn't that how it always goes? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It it definitely makes me think about, like, in fairy tales like Cinderella, where, you know, somebody marries an evil stepmom. In this case, it's a stepdad who, like, has the resources to save them kind of thing. Um, Yeah, so I think she's just a woman without many options, and this seemed like the Mm -hmm. best one. Unfortunately, uh, that doesn't turn out to be the case. Yeah. And Ophelia is not wowed by these, like, expensive clothes and shoes at all, but she sees how elated her mom is, and she's like, oh, yes, you know, they're very... They're very beautiful and leaves to take her bath. So Ophelia goes into the bathroom by herself and takes out the book that the fawn gave her. As she looks at the pages, writing reveals itself. (gasps) And she sees a map of the arbor. That's when there's a knock at the door and Carmen tells her to hurry up. She wants to see the dress on her. So Ophelia then looks in the mirror and she does look at her shoulder and sees that there is a moon birthmark there. Wow. So the fawn was telling the truth. Mm -hmm. From outside the door, we hear Carmen say that she's going to look like a princess. As Ophelia looks at her birthmark, she repeats, a princess. Ew. (gasps) Back in the kitchen, Mercedes is cutting a vegetable. It could be a potato. I thought it looked like yuca. Mm. Who knows? We're in Spain. And um, 
after she finishes, she kind of wipes her knife on her blouse, on her dress, and then actually folds the knife into the hem of her dress. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, chalk off his gun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And she tells the cooks to clean the chickens properly and not to forget the beans. Then Ophelia walks down the stairs and all the women are like, oh, you look so beautiful. You look so gorgeous. And Mercedes offers her some milk with honey. And she's like, yum, yum. Mm. (laughs) So we go outside where Mercedes is literally milking this cow. So it is fresh, fresh milk. Fresh as hell. And Ophelia asks if she believes in fairies. Mercedes says that she used to when she was little, but not anymore. There are a lot of things she doesn't believe in anymore. Mm. Ophelia then tells her that a fairy visited her last night. There were a lot of them. There was also a fawn. And Mercedes tells Ophelia that her mother warned her about fawns, that sometimes they may lead you astray. That's when Vidal comes out and asks Mercedes uh, to come with him. So he takes her to this shed where we see all these men bringing in a ton of food and medicine. And a man gives Vidal the ration card. So these are for all the people in the area to come give their ration cards and they receive various resources. So he asks Mercedes for the key to the shed. She hands it over and he asks if this is the only copy She says, of course. And he says, from now on, he'll be the one carrying it. Mm. Then one of Vidal's men has him look through some binoculars and they see some smoke coming from the mountains. So Vidal says, those are the rebels. Everybody get on your horses. We're going up there. Meanwhile, Ophelia opens up her book once again. Yes, and... She reads about when the woods were young. They were home to creatures full of magic and wonder who protected each other and slept in the shade of a huge fig tree. And while she's talking about the woods um, and the creatures and everything, we see the horses rushing up the mountain Mm -hmm. to find the rebels. And she continues uh, talking about the fig tree and says, on a hill near the mill, But now the tree is dying because of a toad living in the roots. So what she has to do is put these three magic stones into the toad to retrieve the golden key from inside its belly. And Ophelia is standing before the trunk of the tree. She looks down at her shoes, which are now covered in mud. They're disgusting. Mm -hmm. Once she completes her task, the fig tree will be able to grow again. So Ophelia takes off her fancy dress and she actually lays it on a branch nearby and then walks inside of the tree trunk. And we see the dress like waver in the wind. There's a ribbon that just flies off. Inside the tree trunk, Ophelia is covered with mud and creepy crawlies. Ugh. Couldn't be me. I'd be like, well, I guess I'm just going to live a human life forever because I... I'm not Sorry. crawling through that. <laughs> the, the bugs are icky. Yeah. So we then go back to Vidal and his men on the mountain. They arrive at this campsite. The fire is now out. 
and Vidal says they must have been here less than 20 minutes ago, probably a dozen men at most. He then sees a package that they left behind, and inside are antibiotics. Mm. So he's like, they must still be around. They can't have gone far. He then like yells out into the void, oh, you left your medicine behind and your lottery ticket. You better come back and get it. It could be your lucky day. Of course, no one responds and Vidal and his men ride off. And in the distance, we see the rebels peek out from behind the trees and watch them leave. So we go back down to under the tree, Ophelia continues to climb deeper and deeper Ugh. until she hears this grunting and turns around to see a giant toad. Ophelia says hello to the toad and introduces herself as Princess Moana and says she's not afraid of him. She asks if he's ashamed that he lives down here and eats all these bugs and grows fat while the trees die. And that's when the toad sticks his tongue out. Yeah. He, like, kind of, you know, tries to eat her. And then he belches in her face. Ew. I can only imagine how fucking rank it smells down uh, there. But this belch causes Ophelia to drop the stone, so she quickly picks them up again. But one of the things she finds is a bug, and she gets an idea. So she shows the toad the bug, and he sticks out his tongue again, but she just ends up giving him the stones. And the toad eats everything and then vomits up his stomach. So Ophelia grabs the key, and she climbs out of the tree covered in mud, but her dress is gone, and it's nighttime. So she finds her dress covered in mud on the ground, and it starts raining. Yeah. Fun fact, uh, the person who did all of the noises, the sounds for this toad, was del toro himself whoa good for him <laughs> yeah the the special effects definitely haven't aged super well in this one scene i must say i know they did like a, a really nice mix of having practical effects as well as special effects the toad's not looking too great in 2000 fantastic you know, 2023 <laughs> but we can all suspend our disbelief yeah we go back to the house where Vidal is actually waiting for all these guests to arrive and they usher them in. They've all come to sit down for dinner. So we go to the dining room. We have this huge grand table. Vidal, of course, is sitting at the head of the table and there is a, a beautiful feast uh, laid out for everybody. And Vidal introduces the guests to his new bride, Carmen. At the dinner, he tells his you know, various guests about his new plan, that there's going to be one ration card per family. The doctor is concerned because that's not enough food for everybody. But the priest says that if they're careful, it should be plenty, and they can't allow anyone to send things to the rebels in the mountains. So, like, this is their plan, is literally to, like, starve the people in the surrounding area on the off chance that some of them might be helping out the people in the woods. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, which is fucking evil and horrific. He's like, I will not only kill the gorillas in the woods, I will kill the people in my own town. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Vidal says that they're losing ground and one of them is wounded, so he predicts they'll be able to defeat them soon. The doctor asks how he knows that, and Vidal shows the little vial of antibiotics. So you may want to rewind into your head and remember when the doctor gave Mercedes a little vial of antibiotics at the beginning of the movie. It's the same one. How curious. Mm -hmm. Not great. Not great. Yeah. The priest then says the line that we mentioned earlier, God has already saved their souls. What happens to their bodies hardly matters to him. And the mayor says that they'll help in any way they can. They know that he's not here by choice. Vidal then tells them that they're wrong about that. He actually wants his son to be born here in a new, clean Spain. What a phrase. Again, another horrific line. Obviously, fascism is rampant. And he says that these people hold a mistaken belief that they're all equal, but there's a big difference. The war is over, and they won. And if they need to kill them all to show them that, they will. He then holds up a glass and toasts to them all being here by choice. And the group toasts to choice. It's so sinister. It's so, Mm -hmm. like, it makes my skin crawl, this whole scene. I mean, it's just uh, an affirmation that everyone in a position of power in the city is working with Vidal. Yeah. So. Yeah. So back in the kitchen, Mercedes tells the cooks to put the coffee on, and she's going to go get more wood. Outside, Mercedes sends this signal with her lantern into the woods, and then she sees Ophelia coming out of the woods. Hmm. At dinner, a woman asks Carmen how she and the captain met, and she tells them Ophelia's father used to make the captain's uniforms, and after he died, went into work at the shop. And a little more than a year ago, she and the captain met again. And the woman is like, oh, it's so curious. And the other woman's like, yeah, so curious. But Vidal asks them to excuse his wife for thinking these silly questions Sorry, these silly stories are interesting to others. So he's very controlling. I don't know if it's because, in this case, she got married to him Mm -hmm. shortly thereafter. Or I don't know if he just doesn't want people to know how they met. Or he literally just doesn't even want her to speak. Right. At all. So Carmen looks down and Mercedes comes in to tell Carmen that Ophelia is here. She excuses herself and Mercedes wheels her out to see her daughter. Once Mercedes leaves with Carmen, one of the men who's visiting this dinner tells Vidal that he was actually acquainted with his father, and Vidal grimaces at this idea. He says, oh, I had no idea. And this guy is like, yeah, you know, he left a great impression. The men in his battalion said that when he passed away, he smashed his watch So his son would know the exact time of his death. So he could know how a brave man dies. And Vidal is like, oh, that's nonsense. You know, he didn't even own a watch. 
Tick, 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 tick. So we go to the bathroom. It's time for Ophelia to take a bath. Obviously, she is completely covered in mud. And Carmen is very upset. She tells Ophelia that what she's done has hurt her. And once she's done with her bath, she's going to bed without supper. Ophelia doesn't say anything, but Carmen says sometimes she thinks she'll never learn how to behave. She's disappointed in her. And she says, and your father, but Ophelia corrects her to say the captain Mm. because this man is not her father. But Carmen says that the captain is even more disappointed in her than she is. Once she leaves, the fairy then flies in and Ophelia tells the fairy that she has the key and asks to be taken to the labyrinth. That night, Ophelia goes back to the labyrinth and she touches the totem and the fawn comes out of the darkness. Ophelia offers him the key that she got from the toad's belly and the fawn changes the subject and actually mentions the totem and says that that's her and it looks kind of like a baby on the totem and he is also on the totem and he's like glad you retrieved the key the fairy lands on him and he offers it some meat for some reason he's like having a snack when he when he's, he's having like, a little nibble <laughs> Yeah, a little jerky. And he says the fairy believed in her, and the fairy's, like, glad she succeeded. You can see the fairy's, like, very giddy on his shoulder. Mm -hmm. And he tells her to keep the key because she'll be needing it soon and hands her a piece of chalk, too. He tells her that two tasks remain, and the moon is almost full. So he tells her to be patient, and soon they'll stroll through the seven circular gardens of her palace. And I'm like, okay, seven circles of hell. Like, it's just very congruent to what he's saying. But, yeah, there's something shifty about him. Like, I don't know. Mm. Ophelia asks how she's supposed to know what he's saying is true. And he asks her why a poor little fawn like him would lie to her. So Ophelia walks back up the stairs. So the next morning, the people in town all line up to receive their one ration. And, yikes! you know, Vidal is kind of overseeing this whole operation. They hand in their cards. They receive a basket. And he tells them that this is their daily bread in Franco, Spain, kept safe in this mill. The Reds lie when they say there's hunger in Spain because in a united Spain, there's not a single home without bread or a warm fire, which is all bullshit. Um, I know. (laughs) It's so sad. Yeah. Meanwhile, Ophelia sneaks out of bed. Also, like, especially fucked when you remember the fact that, like, he is literally taking resources and rations away from, like, the doctor and from the mayor so that he can have as much beef and chicken as he wants. But everyone else gets one little basket and he gets as much as he wants because, oh my God, that's what dictatorship is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Ophelia sneaks out of bed and she notices her mother is groaning in pain. 
Yeah, not great. Things are things are so weird. Okay. Mm. I know I'm like a little <laughs> tired right now, but but straight up, like this movie is so weird. I mm. thought it would be harder to follow, but it was it was very clear. It was yeah. just very like spooky and mm. the way so like the progression of what's happening with the war and like Mercedes working with the doctor and Vidal trying to kill the rest of the gorillas. Mm-hmm. Like, the way that it's mimicking Ophelia's fantastical, like, journeys and things that she has to accomplish. At first, when I was watching it, I thought that there was going to be some sort of trauma where, like, he was, like, sneaking in to her room. And, like, this is so awful, but, like, Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be something where someone was, like, molesting her. Mm -hmm. And that's why she was having these, these, like, visions because she couldn't cope with that happening. It's so awful. But it's actually a very weird intermingling of these parallel timelines, mm-hmm. which will like, converge shortly. Yeah, but. it's uh, it's interesting because obviously there's a lot of like references to fairy tales, both in like the literal script and also you know in this movie in general. Um, mm-hmm. And fairy tales initially, when they were created, they actually weren't made for a children they were made for adults as like kind of a way to understand and cope with the world around us and it was only through time and especially like the grim brothers kind of compiling all these fairy tales that they kind of became something for children instead yeah and it became a way for children to understand the world around them so i know that there's a lot of debate around this movie in terms of whether these visions that Ophelia are having are just her own coping mechanism with the horrible things going on in her life. Like it's an, an escape, an escapist like coping mechanism for her, or if it's actually happening, I have my own theory and there's one, there's one thing that happens in this movie that cemented for me what I think. And I'll discuss when we get there, but yeah, it's, there's a, I think he wanted to purposely leave it open to interpretation of like whether or not she's actually doing these tasks and this is a real thing or if this is an imaginative um like delusion that she's having. Right, right. Yes. I guess yeah, I'll 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 say I'll save it for later cuz I want everyone to make their own conclusions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um we're we're at the bedroom, right? Uh the bathroom, yes, yes. Yes, the bathroom. So Ophelia decides to go into the restroom to see her book and to figure out what her next task is. And when she opens it, the pages just fill with this like blood red and Ophelia hears her mother moaning and opens the door to see blood pouring out of her. Oh. Yeah. It, she's like hemorrhaging really. Mm-hmm. It's awful. And, um, she calls out to Ophelia to help her, and Ophelia runs outside to get Vidal. So later on, the doctor tells Vidal that his wife needs uninterrupted rest. She'll need to be sedated, and Ophelia should really just sleep elsewhere, um, and he'll remain in the house until the birth. So Vidal tells him to make her well no matter what it costs or what she needs. So we then go to this little attic storage room that's now going to be Ophelia's bedroom. 
Um, Mercedes helps make a bed for Ophelia and tells her not to worry. Her mother will get better soon. She says that having a baby is complicated. And Ophelia tells Mercedes that she's never going to have one. And I'm like, you're mm. putting out some good points. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm also really curious how Carmen and Vidal got involved if he kind of coerced her into birthing his son mm-hmm. or if this was like a mutually beneficial agreement that she, you know, agreed to whatever. There doesn't seem to be any romance involved. It really seems like no. a business transaction. Yeah, he he literally couldn't care less about her. He sees this woman as like Mm-mm. an incubator and nothing else. Right. It also just begs the question, and I feel like you could say this for any character, but it is one of those things where the evil guy is so obsessed with his own machinations and mm-hmm. and uh, plans that it's almost like you just don't have any interest in the feminine in having a relationship or mm-hmm. starting a family. Like it's very two plus two equals four. Like yeah. I'm on time. I'm not on time. Like it's so rote. Um, but I feel like it's so side questy that mm-hmm. they probably didn't even think about it. But it does strike me as just something I noticed because it's not even like he's – we never see him in that capacity where he's even flirting with another woman or anything. He's mm-hmm. just so rigid. Yeah. He's so obsessed with his own power. Like the closest that we see to him like maybe getting flirty with anyone is like literally when he like puts his hand on Mercedes's like shoulder but that's not it doesn't have a romantic or sexual undertone to it at all it's like fully a power thing and so I think that's how he sees all of his relationships is in terms of a like a power hierarchy whether he's on top or somebody else is He's obsessed with having control over this area. He's obsessed with having control over other people, literally to the point where he's starving them. Mm -hmm. So I just don't think that, like, he has any sense of empathy. And I don't think you can love if you don't have empathy. Uh, So true, queen. (laughs) She's just like, yeah, I don't think you can love if you don't have empathy. I'm like... Bitch, what? Bars. <laughs> cry, cry in the club right now. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there's just something <laughs> – there's something I find so curious about men who are so tightly coiled. Mm-hmm. And um, perhaps that's my fatal flaw. <laughs> I'm kidding. But it, it is it is very interesting. And yeah. I've already said this, but his performance is spectacular. So mm-hmm. Definitely. Yes. So where – oh, yes. They're in the bathroom. Ophelia says she's never going to have a kid. And Mercedes strokes her hair to comfort her. And Ophelia reveals to Mercedes that she knows she's the one who's been helping the men in the woods. Mm. And Mer- Mercedes is stunned and terrified. And she asks if she's told anyone. But Ophelia says no. She doesn't want anything bad to happen to her. Aw. And Mercedes hugs her and tells her, nor I to you. 
Ophelia then asks if she knows a lullaby, and Mercedes says only one, but she doesn't remember the words. But Ophelia asks her to sing it anyways, and Mercedes hums to her. And this lullaby is really the centerpiece of the entire score. In this movie, all the music is either related to, incorporates this lullaby, or just surrounds this lullaby. It's both the the closing and opening Mm -hmm. uh, sound in the movie, which made me think about how in like fairy tales and like a lot of fairy tale movies it'll be bookended by like the opening of a storybook and a closing of the storybook and i think the lullaby functions as that device interesting yeah i definitely see that parallel Mm -hmm. now that you mention it but i wasn't thinking about that before good eye thank you i kept my ear out (laughs) yeah fucking hell (laughs) so That night, Mercedes uncovers a secret hiding spot that she has been using to store things in when someone comes up behind her. Oh, my God. Scared the shit out of me. I was terrified. (laughs) I was like, someone's about to get shot. Yeah. And But it turns out it's just the doctor. And she asks him if he's ready. And he's like, yes, let's go. So they walk through the woods and the doctor tells Mercedes that this is madness. When Vidal finds out, he'll kill them. Mercedes asks if he's so afraid of him, and he tells her it's not fear, at least not for himself. And a man comes out of the woods. His name is Pedro. He turns out to be Mercedes' brother. Very smart thing that I wanted to point out here is that uh, they're actually walking through the stream. They're walking in the water. Mm-hmm. That way they don't leave footprints. Smart. Mm-hmm. Smart. I was just going to say that I liked that he was her brother and not yeah. a love interest because mm-hmm. I just feel like it wouldn't have made any sense. Yeah. So. So we go back to Ophelia in her little attic bedroom, very Sam Montgomery-esque. And yeah, right. who comes to her in the middle of the night? But the fawn, Mm. he says that she didn't carry out her task. And Ophelia tells the fawn she couldn't because her mother is sick. And he tells her that's no excuse. He then shows her a mandrake root. And he talks about how a mandrake is just a plant that dreamt of being human. And he tells her to put it under her mother's bed in a bowl of fresh milk and each morning to give it two drops of blood. Like, this will help heal her mother. The The mandrake root is also, like, fully alive. Like, it's... It's so cute. It's moving and squirming. <laughs> I think he says this is a root that dreamt of... Did you say this? Yeah. He's a plant that dreamt of being human, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, so... Eek! Like, I want to tickle it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... The fawn then tells her that there's no time to waste because the full moon will be here soon. And he also gives her his fairies, his little pets, to guide her and tells her that she's going to a very dangerous place. So be careful. The thing that slumbers there isn't human. Bro. (sighs) That's an understatement. Yeah. He also warns her. Ophelia, open your ears and listen closely. (laughs) There will be a feast, but she shouldn't eat or drink anything 
in there at all. Her life depends on it. <laughs> you listening, Ophelia? <laughs> so back in the woods, Mercedes and the doctor enter the gorilla's like hideaway shelter that they've created. And she gives them some, I forget how to pronounce this, orujo, orojo, I don't know. She gives them some brandy, cheese, and tobacco, and also some mail. And the doctor goes to check on Frenchie's leg. Um, He's one of the, you know, guerrilla soldiers, and his leg looks very bad. I don't know if it was like he got shot. It looks infected. And... Some other men read the paper. Apparently, British and Canadian soldiers have landed in France, and Dwight D. Eisenhower is saying they won't accept anything less than complete victory over Germany. So that's the haps for you in the world. Mm-hmm. And the doctor looks at Frenchie's leg, like I said, very badly infected, and tells him there's no way to save it. So... He opens up his kit for an amputation and tells him he will try to make it in as few cuts as possible. I I can't stress enough just how dull and primitive this little saw he has looks. It's bad. Like It it looks like it would be difficult to even cut some plywood with this thing. Ugh. I know I'm like all these men in movies who get shot and who have amputations and stuff. And I'm Mm. like, damn, like in real life, like could a man withstand these horrible (laughs) pains? I guess some of them have in in history. In history, yeah. But. Ugh. Ugh. It's not great. It's bad. Yeah. There's also that there's that brief moment like right before he goes to literally cut this man's leg off and he like asked for a moment to like yeah look at his leg and say goodbye to his leg <sighs> and just mentally prepare yeah oof luckily they don't really show much of it yeah just like the initial yeah he brings like the saw down yeah so we go back to Ophelia she's in her little attic bedroom she opens the book and the pages appear once again and she is instructed to draw a door with the chalk in her room. So she traces a door on the wall, and once the door opens, she needs to start the hourglass and let the fairies guide her. She must not eat or drink. She must not eat or drink anything. (laughs) One more time for the people in the back. In case you forgot, don't eat or drink anything in this room. It's giving... The Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. eating the forbidden fruit. Mm-hmm. Yep. And she also must come back through her little chalk door before the last grain of sand in the hourglass falls. And let me tell you, this hourglass. <laughs> it's moving. <laughs> it's moving and grooving. It's slipping and sliding. Mm-hmm. The grains are gushing yeah. to the other side. <laughs> and yet... She moves with no urgency. None. (laughs) So she opens the door and sees this long hallway. So she puts on her little bag, 
she turns the hourglass and, you know, at a glacial pace, walks down this <laughs> hall. Did you smack your little head on a on the <laughs> <Yeah>. pavement? <laughs> oh, so she gets into this main dining room, which looks just like the dining room in the house. The same long table set up just like that dinner scene that we saw. Huge feast. And sitting at the end, the head of the table in Captain Vidal's seat, is the most horrific thing you've ever seen in your life. Yes. Um, it's the pale man. He is this Dude. white monster that has a lot of, like, hanging skin. Like, it, you know how mm -hmm. when people lose a lot of weight and they have excess skin? People who lose a lot of weight, you're monsters. No. <laughs> Well, th that's what they, they modeled it after because Guillermo uh, really? del Toro specifically wanted that inspired by, like, his own experiences with, like, losing weight and having excess skin. So, it, like, this is one of the things that he gave um, to the, the art department for his, like, design ideas. He wanted, Whoa. like, this pale figure with a lot of excess uh, skin. Mm -hmm. The the way his body is shaped reminded me actually of, like um, – like an unplucked or sorry a uh, a chicken without feathers mm -hmm. yeah yeah he said he wanted it to look like a really really old man who lost a lot of weight so they gave him oh. uh like sketches back and he took the sketch and he erased the face and said okay this is what i want he's such a creepy guy <laughs> he's so yeah. creepy <laughs> yeah so we have this figure sitting there, hands on the table, unmoving, like no face, just nose holes and like a mouth. Mm -hmm. um, and this character is also played by Doug Jones. He plays uh, both the pale man and the fawn. And when they filmed it, he actually, because obviously, you know, no eyes, he had to look through the nose holes. Um, that tracks. To see what he was doing. And also, we'll see later when this character stands up. Um, that it has these like very, very, very skinny, skinny legs. Mm -hmm. So the legs were actually like attached to um, his hips and he wore like, uh, like green screen. Right. Like okay. pants behind it. Um, so they could remove it all in post. So there's some fun facts for you before we get into the horrific imagery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... Ophelia looks around this room and she sees a bunch of these like murals on the wall and they are paintings of the pale man eating children, like literally devouring babies. She also sees an old pile of baby shoes, which definitely is also a reference to like all of those photos from the Holocaust of um you know, various items of clothing, piles of shoes and stuff like that. Mm. She then opens up the bag to release the fairies and they fly out and direct her to three small doors that are all locked. So she takes out her key that she got from her frog quest and she tries one door. It doesn't work. She tries another. We then cut back to the hourglass where time is a ticking. Mm -hmm. So Ophelia opens up the door and reaches inside. And what she pulls out is a very large dagger. 
So she is like complete this quest. She got the dagger that she needs. All she has to do is leave. Just leave. Just, you know, turn around, walk she has down her the fairy hall. buddies. Yep. It's like, let's go, gang. Yep. But does she do that? No. No. She instead walks back over to the table and she sees all this food. And despite this like huge bounty of, you know, cooked like roast chicken and and all these things she's like you know what i'm gonna risk it all for (laughs) a grape (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) so she's looking at the grapes and the fairies are literally like flying around trying to stop her being like no 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 don't like let's Mm -hmm. get out of here and she's just swatting them away like ah whatever leave me alone so she plucks a grape And she eats it. And as soon as she eats that grape, the pale man, we see his hands start to move. His creepy, long fingernails. And, you know, that neck starts a cracking. He starts moaning. Ophelia is like, you know what? I think I need another. And she grabs another grape and eats it. Again, the fairies are trying to stop her flying in her face, and mm-hmm. she just shoes them away. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the pale man, he has a plate in front of him with two eyeballs on it. And he picks up those eyeballs, puts them in his hands, and we get that horrifying image of the two hands in front of the face with those yeah. red eyeballs. And it, like... Is forever one of the most like unsettling things I've ever seen. Absolutely. So the pale man starts to get up out of his seat and slowly walk towards Ophelia. Her back is turned to him. The fairies keep trying to stop her, but she's just swatting them away. So the fairies then fly over to the pale man to try and stop him to attack him, but he just grabs them and like literally bites their heads off and eats them right away. So two of the fairies, gone. Mm -hmm. Ophelia finally turns around and notices this horrifying monster behind her. So she starts to run, but the pale man is pursuing her, of course. Ophelia runs back down that hallway, but the last grain of sand falls before Ophelia can crawl back through that door. The door is gone. So she is now trapped and she tries to draw another door, but her chalk breaks. So she frantically like gets on the very edge of the chair as like the pale man is literally on her fucking tail. He is, has his hand like outstretched to her so he can like see her with his eye as he's like going towards her. And the pale man is like obviously a, a direct reference to Vidal, but also just about like the evil that exists. Obviously there's references to the Catholic church. There's references to Mm -hmm. like the fascist government about just something that literally ignores the, the bounty of food in front of it in favor of literally devouring a child about devouring a person. 
But this image of the hand reaching out with the eye Mm -hmm. is like, this thought is like not fully formed. So I'm trying to like articulate it the best I can, but it's like something that's so evil can't see a person unless it's reaching out to literally grab it like to literally take it and like devour it and Mm. kill it which is just like oh it's so bone chilling yeah so the pale man is about to grab ophelia she frantically climbs on like the edge of this chair and she draws a door on the ceiling A new door opens up and she crawls through it as the pale man is reaching for her legs, but she manages to escape just in time. We hear the pale man like banging on the door, but she has escaped. In the morning, the gorillas climb down the mountain and tell Mercedes and the doctor that soon 50 new men will arrive from Yaka and they will face Vidal. And the doctor is like, what's the point? They're just going to send another one just like him. And he tells them they're screwed. They have no guns, no safe shelter, and they need food and medicine. The doctor tells him he needs to take care of Mercedes. And if he loved her, he'd cross the border with her. But Pedro says there's no choice. Then Pedro tells Mercedes she needs to leave And Mercedes gives him the key to the food storage shed, but tells him not to go now because that's what Vidal expects. So Pedro tells her to leave it to him, and Mercedes calls herself a coward, but he's like, no, you're not. And she's like, I am for living next to that son of a bitch, doing his laundry, making his bed, feeding him. And she asks him, what if the doctor is right and they can't win? And Pedro tells her, at least they'll make things harder for that bastard. So it's very, you know, this is all we can do. Mm -hmm. Even though they want to, I mean, the doctor wants them to back down. Pedro clearly doesn't want to back down. But like, they're like, this is all we have. This is all we can do. You know, what are we supposed to do? We're just supposed to stop. Like, yeah. yeah. So Mm -hmm. very difficult decision. We then go back to Captain Vidal, who, you know, is once again shaving while his music plays. And it's only like now in retrospect that I kind of notice how many shaving scenes they have and how that also kind of foreshadows something that's going to happen to him, having a blade so close to his face like that. Mm. And he hears the ticking of his pocket watch. He looks in the mirror he holds his razor up to his reflection and he like, you know, slice it, pretends to like slice as if he's decapitating yeah. himself. We then go to Carmen's bedroom where she has been, you know, ordered to bed rest. Ophelia visits her. She pours the milk in a bowl. She puts the mandrake root in it. And it's like, it's like, <laughs> so she places this little mandrake baby under the bed she this like was crazy to me that she bites her finger hard enough to like puncture her skin i don't even think my body would let me do that i was like girl you got that dog in you (laughs) i'm like 
I literally don't think my brain would like let me bite hard enough to actually draw blood on my I'm own. I'm afraid, finger. honestly. Yeah. I don't know. She has baby teeth. She we, have, those we have adult teeth. Chompas. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to like <laughs> bloodlet ourselves. Yeah. Oh, um, but yeah, she like draws blood from her finger with her own tooth. <laughs> and you're like, uh, this is why I can't have kids. <laughs> kids are fucking crazy, man. I can't do it. So <laughs> she then squeezes the, you know, drops of blood into the milk. And that's when she hears the ticking of the pocket watch. The captain is close by. So she stays hidden under the bed and the doctor takes, you know, Carmen's pulse, her vitals, and mentions to Vidal that her temperature is somehow suddenly down. Mm. Like she still has a fever, yes, but it's way less severe than it was. Like this is a good sign. Her body is, you know, responding. It's It's healing. And... The captain is like, great, love to hear it. Just so you know, if you have a choice, like if you have to choose between saving her or the baby, save the baby because the son will bear my name and my father's name and I need to continue my my lineage. Mm-hmm. So Ophelia obviously hears this man saying like, yeah, don't care about her, just save the baby. Then outside, we hear explosions. Yeah. There's a huge explosion that happens on the mountainside. And in the bedroom, Ophelia puts her ear to her mother's belly. And she tells her brother that things out here aren't too good. But soon, he'll have to come out. And he's made her mother very sick. She asks him, please, not to hurt her. She's very pretty. And even though she's sad for many days at a time, you'll see when she smiles, you'll love her. And she tells him if he does this for her, she promises that she'll take him to her kingdom and make him a prince. So heartbreaking. Yeah. Meanwhile, up on the mountain, Vidal's men are investigating this explosion. There's a crashed train. And the train conductor says that there were men that, like, wouldn't move out of the way. They crashed and that, like, the firemen jumped out just in time. Vidal asks what they stole from the freight cars, but the train conductor says, well, that's the weird thing. They didn't open any of the cars. They didn't take anything. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, only God knows what they wanted other than to waste our time. And that's when they hear another explosion and the men begin shooting. Oh, my God. It was a diversion. Yeah. Right. I'm like, (laughs) have you ever been in a war? (laughs) Right. So one of the soldiers tells Vidal that they came out of nowhere. They had grenades and they went up the hill. They tell him that they've surrounded a group that took cover on the hill. And that's when Vidal sees that the lock to the food shed has been opened. Mm. So the men go up the mountain. We have a gunfight that ensues. So Vidal has two main men. Garces, 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 I don't know. And Serrano. And Mm. I know that this was Serrano because I think he refers to him at some point, but 
they were, it's very hard to tell them apart because they're both in uniform and you don't see their faces very well. So, yeah. So Vidal tells Serrano to go ahead and not be afraid. This is the only decent way to die. And he looks at his pocket watch and he takes a breath in before he turns around to face the rebels and he shoots his gun. We see him reload. He advances up the hill. He watches as the last of these gorillas, the the rebels, go down. And they climb up to see the men. One has survived. Vidal asks to, like, see his wound and asks if he can talk. But the man is literally, like, gasping for air. Yeah. So Vidal points his gun at him. This dying man tries to, like, bat it away. Vidal kind of like lets him bat it away a couple of it's times. It's really bad. It's yeah. so like just like toying sinister. With him. Yeah, yeah. Before he eventually shoots him, we then see you know Vidal's men go around and shooting everybody to make sure that they're dead until they see another one that's still alive, and that's when Vidal sees that he's only been shot in the leg. Mm. So they decide to take him prisoner. Yes. Back in the house, in the kitchen, one of the women tells Mercedes that they took one of the gorillas captive and they're taking him to the storeroom. So Mercedes runs out and she's not yelling, but she's like, Pedro, Pedro. And she watches as they drag one of the men into the storeroom. And Mercedes keeps trying to get a look at his face. And that's when Vidal comes up and she's like, oh, I need to get into the storage room. But he's like, no. You can't, like, get away. Mm -hmm. Then the gentleman who they have captured finally lifts his head up, and she sees who the prisoner is. It's Stutter. They close the door to the storeroom. Yeah. So at least we know it's not Pedro, but... Still really, really bad. Yeah. And he also could have very well died in that uh, Mm -hmm. big gunfight. There's a line in the script that I looked up that's in English, and it says, like, Mercedes sees its stutter and looks at him with a look of, like, sadness and guilt, but also relief. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Mercedes ends up going into the kitchen, and she chops some vegetables Lots of vegetables. And then the cook is like, hey, that's enough. Yeah, she's like, we get it. This is your thing. (laughs) Yeah. Mercedes then once again wipes her knife on her dress, folds it into her hem, and she takes a tray of milk and bread to Carmen's room. So in Carmen's room, Mercedes and the doctor exchange some looks, and the doctor gives Carmen a half dose of her medicine. She tells him that she doesn't think she needs it. She feel She's feeling so much better. He tells Carmen he doesn't understand like how that could be, but he's glad. And he walks away, leaving the, the rest of the vial on her bed frame. I was surprised he didn't make her take it. But yeah. the doctor is like, honestly a pretty good guy. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Back in the storeroom, Stutter is tied up. And Vidal smokes his cigarette and tells him this is really good tobacco. He offers it to Stutter, and Stutter tells him to go to hell. 
And Fidel's like, oh, we caught one and he's a stutter. We're going to be here all night. So Garces tells Vidal, as long as he talks. And Vidal is like, yeah, he's right about that. You should do as we say, but just to make sure, I brought along a few tools. So Vidal does a little show and he's like showing him a hammer and tells him he won't be able to trust him at first. So he'll have to use this. And then he shows him the wrench and says, when they get to this one, they'll have a closer relationship, like brothers. God. Finally, he shows him the knife and says, when they get to that one, he'll believe everything he tells him. Vidal offers to let Stutter go if he can count to three without stuttering. And again, like, with a guy pawing away his gun, he basically just um, berates this guy. and Yeah, just like dangles mm-hmm. any sense of freedom or mercy or anything in front of him. Yeah, and Stutter actually looks at the other men because he's like shocked at him saying this. Mm-hmm. But Vidal tells him to look at him because there's no one above him. So Vidal tells Stutter to go ahead, and he begins counting just very carefully. He says, uno. And then taking a break, he he goes in to say it again, and he says, dos. But when he attempts to say, tres, he stutters. And Vidal tells him a shame and just swings at him with a hammer just it like gives me shivers it's so it's so sinister yeah we then fast forward to the evening and the fawn comes to visit ophelia in her room and mentions that her mother is doing much better and he asks if she's relieved and she says yes but you know things haven't turned out so well Ophelia then hands over the bag, which housed the fairies, and tells the fawn that she had an accident, and he opens the bag to see that there's only one fairy left. Mm. And I think the fairy has, like, a broken wing or something, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. So the green fairy then chirps in the fawn's ear, points at Ophelia, and presumably, you know, tells him what happened in the room with the pale man. So the fawn is very upset that she ate from the table and Ophelia tells him it was only two grapes. She thought no one would notice, but the fawn tells her that she broke the rules and now she can never return. The moon will be full in three days and her spirit will forever remain among the humans. He tells her that she'll age like them and die like them and all memory of her shall fade in time, and they'll vanish with it. She'll never see them again. Devastating. Yeah. Like, the 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 fawn, this quest, the fairies are the only thing that's been bringing her any sense of comfort amongst mm-hmm. her mom, like, basically being on her deathbed, having this horrible, horrible, evil man of a stepfather, and knowing that there's ongoing atrocities happening right outside her door in the woods. So we go back to the shed 
and Vidal washes the blood off his hands with this rain that's pouring outside. That was such a vivid image just to see him like literally washing blood off his hands in the Mm -hmm. rain. Like it's nothing. Yeah. So the doctor walks up to him and Vidal apologizes for waking him up so early, but he thinks they need him. So the doctor goes into the storeroom and looks at Stutter's arm, which is like very wounded. I'm assuming it's been like smashed, like it's yeah, his just hand really... is kind of just like it's like limp and mm-hmm. laying like oh it's it's awful. And he asks what Vidal did to him. And while he's tending to stutter, Vidal notices in the doctor's kit the vial that looks exactly like the antibiotics that he found in the woods. And Vidal says that he likes having him available. It has its advantages. Then he leaves. And tells Serrano to stay. So while the doctor's um, still leaning over Stutter, Stutter whispers to him and admits that he talked. Not a lot, but still. The doctor tells him he's sorry. And Stutter asks him to please kill him now. Yeah. Meanwhile, Vidal goes to his study And he inspects the two antibiotic vials to see that they're identical. So he has now put two and two together Mm -hmm. that the doctor has been supplying, you know, the men in the woods with various resources. Meanwhile, back in the storeroom, the doctor uh, brings over an injection to Stutter's arm, but he can't, like, bring himself to actually do it. So Stutter guides his hand into his arm and the doctor injects him. He tells Stutter that it'll take the pain away and that it's almost over. So he's, we don't know exactly what the substance is, but, you know, presumably this will kill him and, you know, put him out of his misery. Meanwhile, in this study, Vidal is about to leave when he hears someone. Meanwhile, upstairs, Ophelia puts the glass in the pitcher back on the tray and shimmies under the bed. We see Vidal walking up the stairs. Under the bed, Ophelia talks to the mandrake root and asks if it's sick because it's not moving anymore. Then Vidal drags her out from under the bed and asks what she's doing under there until he bends down and checks for himself. Vidal, you know, pulls out the bowl of milk with the mandrake root from under the bed, and he's disgusted and asks what this is. He then takes the root out of the bowl and, like, squeezes it, and Ophelia starts yelling no. This wakes Carmen up, and she she asks Vidal to, like, you know, leave her to deal with this. And Vidal tells her that, you know, Ophelia put this under her bed and asks what she thinks of it. So Carmen goes up to Ophelia and asks, you know, what she was doing with this weird root milk thing under the bed. And Ophelia tells her that it's a magic root that a fawn gave her. Vidal just says that she's imagining all this because all of the junk that Carmen lets her read. Because how dare a, a girl be allowed to read the horror. Mm-hmm. Carmen then asks him to, you know, leave them alone and she'll deal with it. So Vidal agrees and and he leaves. 
Ophelia tells Carmen that the fawn said she would get better, and she did. And Carmen says that she needs to listen to her father. She has to stop this. But Ophelia just cries, and she begs her mom to, like, take her away from here. She just wants to leave this place. Yeah. But Carmen says it's not that simple. She's getting older, and soon she'll see that life isn't like the fairy tales. The world is a cruel place, and she'll learn that even if it hurts. She then throws the mandrake root on the fire, and Ophelia screams, and Carmen tells her that magic doesn't exist, not for her, not for anyone else. And both Ophelia and the mandrake root are, like, screaming. That thing is, like, screaming out in pain as it's being burned alive, especially because... I don't know if we mentioned this, but when she first puts like the root under the bed in the milk, mm-hmm. um, its movements mirror like Carmen's movement. So it's basically like implied that this mandrake root and Carmen are like one in the same. If one of them is harmed, the other one will be harmed because right. Carmen, as like this root is burning up in the fire, she feels this huge pain in her stomach and she falls to the ground. She collapses and Ophelia shouts out for help. Yeah. Back in the storeroom, Vidal comes in to see Stutter dead and asks the doctor what he did. The doctor tells him it was the only thing he could do. And Vidal tells him he could have listened to him and asked why he didn't obey him. The doctor tells him to obey for the sake of obeying That's something only Vidal can do. He takes his case and leaves, and on his way out, Vidal shoots him. Oh, it's it's so awful. Like, he knows that it's coming. um, And when he gets shot, he actually, like, keeps walking for a few steps before he finally collapses. Ugh. Just then, Mercedes comes up and tells him about Carmen. He tells her to call the troop paramedic. And I'm like, this timing of the doctor mm-hmm. being killed by Vidal coinciding with Carmen's birth is like, it's just like, oh, yeah. you suck, you suck. Yeah. So Vidal and Ophelia wait in the hall while Carmen undergoes a very painful and very bloody delivery But when they open a door, they hear the baby crying. Uh, But the man tells him, you know, his wife is dead. Ophelia hears this and slowly walks forward. Yeah, because of course the troop paramedic is not going to be the best in this situation. Mm -hmm. Probably never delivered a baby in his life. We then go to Carmen's funeral and we see... Vidal holding his son in his arms while the priest speaks and Mercedes comforts Ophelia. The priest says, Because the paths to the Lord are inscrutable. Because the essence of his forgiveness lies in his word and in his mystery. Because although God sends us the message, it is our task to decipher it. Because when we open our arms, the earth takes in only a hollow and senseless shell. Far away now is the soul in its eternal glory. Because it is in pain that we find the meaning of life. 
and the state of grace that we lose when we are born, because God, in his infinite wisdom, puts the solution in our hands, and because it is only in his physical absence that the place he occupies in our souls is reaffirmed. Back in the house, Ophelia cleans out her mother's bedroom and notices the vial with her medicine is still there. So she decides to take it and take her suitcase and leave. And later on, Mercedes tends to the baby. So we go to Vidal's study, and he asks Mercedes if she knew the doctor well. She tells him, you know, we all knew him. And Vidal tells her that Stutter actually said that there was an informant here at the mill. He then asks Mercedes to sit down and pours her some whiskey, saying she must think he's a monster. Mercedes says it doesn't matter what someone like her thinks. He then downs his glass and pours himself another and asks her to get a new bottle from the storeroom. So she puts down her glass, hasn't drank a drop, turns to leave, and he says, aren't you forgetting something? And he takes out the key. Mm. He's like, I had all, I had the only copy, right? Right. And, and she's like, yes, of course. And he says, you know, there's been this one little detail that's been bothering me, actually. You know, the day that the men broke into the storehouse, they used all these grenades and explosives, and yet the lock was never compromised. And she's obviously terrified. And he says, oh, it's probably not important. You know, just make sure you're very careful. So Mercedes goes back to her hiding spot and takes out a letter. And she goes into Ophelia's room and tells her that she's leaving tonight. And Ophelia begs her to take her with her. But Mercedes says, I can't. But I promise to come back for you. And Ophelia is like, please, like, take me with you. So they go outside and they're walking through the woods in the rain when Ophelia thinks she heard something, but Mercedes tells her not to worry. So she turns but sees Vidal and the rest of the army. The way that this is shot was, like, so spooky because she's holding an umbrella and we have this really mm. close-up on Mercedes' face like she has the umbrella behind her and then she turns around and Vidal is like right there. So close. They're right behind her. It's insane. So Vidal brings Ophelia back to her room and asks her how long she's known about Mercedes. And he hits her and asks how long she's been laughing at him. And I'm just like, this guy couldn't be any more insecure. Mm. And Vidal tells them to watch Ophelia And if anyone tries to come in, kill her first. So Vidal and his men, they bring Mercedes to the storeroom. They tie her up against that same pole that they did with Stutter. And he goes through her bag to see that she has chorizo, tobacco. And he says, Mercedes, if you had just asked me, I would have given this to you. And I'm like, you're a dirty, rotten little liar. Mm Mm-hmm. And he looks at her letters and, you know, tells uh, tells his men that he wants the names of all those who wrote letters tomorrow. 
The captain then tells Garces to to give them a moment alone. And Garces is like, oh, are you sure? And Vidal says, she's just a woman. (laughs) We'll be fine. So Mercedes actually tells Vidal that that's why she was able to get away with this for so long, because she's just seen as just a woman. And he says, ah, you found my my weakness, my pride, but I want to find your weakness. And then he shows her his tools and gives like a very similar speech like he did with Stutter. But some eagle-eyed viewers may remember that Mercedes still has that handy-dandy little knife <gasps> hidden in her waistband. So while Vidal is doing his whole spiel about his various torture devices... She pulls that knife out and frees herself from those ropes. She then sneaks up on Vidal from behind and stabs him. When he turns around, she stabs him again right in the in the chest, I think. Mm. She calls him a son of a bitch and tells him he better not dare touch Ophelia as she holds the knife in his mouth, like in the corner of his mouth on his lip, and says if he touches her, he won't be the first pig that she's gutted. She then slices through like the corner of his mouth, like through his face, and she leaves the storeroom. She like, you know, very calmly and quietly starts walking through. And I'm like, that's mm-hmm. how you play it. You don't run. You don't do anything to draw attention. But of course, the men do- are like, oh, he let her go. How weird. Because <laughs> they see Mercedes just like walking through the yard. Yeah. So he calls out to her and cocks his gun, and that's when the mangled Vidal emerges from the storeroom and, you know, orders the officer to to go get her. So Mercedes then runs into the woods as a pack of men on horses follow. Wow. Of course, they are faster than she is on foot, so they do end up surrounding her in the woods. And one of the officers, I think it's Serrano, he um, approaches, he like dismounts and approaches Mercedes as she draws her knife. And he's like, hey, it'll just be easier if you come with us without struggling. But then she holds the knife up to her own neck. And he tells her to relax and says, if anyone's going to be killing her, it should be him. Then, out of nowhere... Pop, 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 pop. Guns start to fire off, and all of Vidal's men dead, shot and killed. It was the rebels. They were lying in wait. They took out all the men, and Pedro, who is still alive, Aww. runs up and hugs Mercedes as the rebels walk out. Later on, Ophelia leans on her suitcase, and the fairies and fawn appear. He decided to give her one last chance. (gasps) The fawn tells her to bring her brother to the labyrinth as quickly as she can because they need him. She tells him the door is locked, and he tells her to create her own door and hands her the chalk. Also important to note that the fawn does say, like, From this point on, she has to do everything he asks without questions. It's the only way that she'll, you know, succeed. And she she agrees to this. 
this moment is what cemented in my mind that the fantasy world is real mm-hmm. because she is successfully able to draw a door with a shock and escape, which yeah. she wouldn't have been able to do without that because, like, obviously there were men guarding her door. So for me, this is the piece of evidence that points to the fantasy world not just being a coping coping mechanism, but it being real because there are real life, like this is a real life thing that she's able to interact with. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think about that. Yeah. I mean, I guess like you could say, oh, well, maybe she just like found another way out of there. But I'm like, nah, it was the chalk. It was the chalk door for sure. Oh, yeah. So... So we go to Vidal's study where he is washing like the blood off of him from his various stab wounds Mm -hmm. and really horrific image as he does his own stitches on that slash on his cheek uh, with his mouth. Really gross. And Ophelia is hiding behind his desk waiting to just like grab her brother. So as she's waiting, she ends up putting the piece of chalk on the table. And once uh, Vidal finishes up with his stitches, he hears the baby crying. So he then decides, which I'm like, insane choice. uh, He decides to take a shot of whatever, his alcohol of choice, I assume brandy. And I'm like, you have an open wound in your mouth. You should not be drinking alcohol so obviously it hurts like a motherfucker and we see his bandage get like soaked with blood he's about to do another shot for some reason when he then notices the chalk sitting on his desk so he looks around he cocks his gun but Ophelia isn't there one of Vidal's soldiers then comes in and tells him to you know come see Serrano he's back but he's wounded so Serrano d- did survive this uh, this ambush in the woods. So Vidal leaves and we see Ophelia hiding in his office. She then takes her mother's medicine out of her coat and pours a bunch of drops into Vidal's drink. Yeah. So, uh, like, I assume that this medicine is, like, a sleeping, like, a, a, a sedate like a sedation medicine, like a sleeping. Yeah. Something like that. I, I feel like the closest thing I can think of is like, um, what are they? If you're like really old and you have to go to the hospital, they hook you up and you can release this medicine. Yeah. Like a sedative. Yeah. yeah. There's a specific name, but I, I just can't remember like it right now. Like a morphine drip kind of thing. Morphine <laughs> drip. I, yeah. I might be morphine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in any case, I assume it's like literally to, to drug him. So he passes out. She can slip away in the night. So Vidal meets with Serrano and asks about Garces, but Garces didn't make it in the shootout. So it's just Serrano and he's injured and he asks how many men there are. And he's like at least 50. They tell him none of the watch posts are responding and they have about 20 men left, maybe less. Meanwhile, in the study, Ophelia gets her brother and tells him they're leaving together and not to be afraid, nothing is going to happen to him. 
That's when Vidal comes back in and Ophelia hides. He instructs a man to have the remaining soldiers at the tree line and to call for reinforcements. And Vidal almost takes his drink, but then he looks at his watch and he drinks the uh, the whiskey or whatever and an explosion goes off. In the light of this explosion, he sees Ophelia standing there and holding the baby and he tells her to leave him, but she shakes her head. So he walks toward her, but he starts stumbling. Like it's clearly mm-hmm. taking control of his nervous system. He pulls out his gun and follows her slowly. Vidal walks outside where there's a complete war happening. Like it's a total mm-hmm. like feet on the ground war right outside of yeah. the complex. Meanwhile, Mercedes, like through the distraction of this this shootout that's happening, um, she goes to Ophelia's room to get her, but obviously Ophelia is not there. We see outside Ophelia enters the labyrinth. Vidal is following her, chasing her through the maze, but Ophelia ends up at a dead end when suddenly the walls part mm. and let her through and Vidal loses her. <gasps> so Ophelia winds up in this clearing where the fawn is waiting for her and, you know, beckons Ophelia to give him uh, her brother since the full moon is almost here. And that's when Ophelia notices the dagger in the fawn's hand. He tells her that the portal will only open if they use the blood of an innocent. Just a drop, a pinprick. But it's the final task. Ophelia does not want to hand her brother over, and the fawn starts to get angry and tells Ophelia that she promised to do whatever he wanted, no questions asked. But Ophelia says no, her brother stays with her. He asks if she would give up her sacred rights for this brat that she hardly knows, and Ophelia says yes. He asks if she would give up her throne for him, who has caused her misery and humiliation. And that's when Vidal catches up to Ophelia, and she tells the fawn that she would. But from Vidal's point of view, he sees Ophelia speaking to no one. And this was, I think, an interesting thing, because this is another thing that could point to the fact that everything is in her head. But Vidal is under the influence of both alcohol and some sort of sedative. So whatever he's seeing is likely not reality. Yeah. There are a lot of um, different Mm -hmm. perspectives in this scene. Yes. So... Vidal goes up to Ophelia, spins her around, and takes the baby. She tells him no, but Vidal shoots Ophelia. Which is crazy, because she's a child. Yeah, I, like, genuinely don't know, like, the last time. Like, I can point to very, very few instances in film where I've seen a child get shot. Shot? The one I remember was... Um, euphoria yeah but before that um did you watch hereditary no okay there's no shooting but there's like Mm -hmm. a thing that happens um but yeah it, it was it was just like um I knew he was a horrible person, but mm-hmm. him doing that was just kind of like 
okay, you are awful. Like you're despicable and you will stop at nothing. So, yeah. (sighs) So Ophelia falls to the ground and Vidal walks out of the labyrinth where he is met with the entire group of rebels surrounding him. So he offers Mercedes his son. She takes him. He then takes out his pocket watch and he asks Mercedes to tell his son the time that his father died. And she says, no, he won't even know your name. And then Pedro shoots him. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't even believe that he asked her that after everything. Oh, I can, given his character. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. But it was a very satisfying Mm -hmm. moment to hear her say, no, he won't even know your name. And then... Because that's everything that he wanted was his legacy, his lineage to live on. Yeah, yeah, take his father's name and Mm -hmm. really... I think that there's also... We touch upon it, but we we don't really dig into this factor. Mm-hmm. But he is so eager to surpass his father's legacy. Oh, and absolutely, yeah. He is just living in his father's shadow, mm-hmm. who was like this honorable guy, this captain. Everyone loved, like his battalion respected. And he is just so angry and mad with power and he doesn't have the respect of anyone on his team. No. It's like he is getting laughed at behind um, his back. And and it's just so pathetic. And you, it's so highlighted in this moment how pathetic he is. Absolutely, yeah. And it also made me think about um, that scene earlier of what the fawn said to Ophelia where it's like, you will die and like you will not be remembered and like your 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 memory will vanish stuff like that like that's what his fate actually is right <sighs> mhm so mercedes and pedro walk into the labyrinth and mercedes sees ophelia on the ground and we zoom into her hand and it's dripping blood and the drops of blood fall down into the cavern, and Mercedes hums to Ophelia. Yeah. Once again, it's our opening image of the movie. Kind of all ties back together. Mm-hmm. And there's – you see the blood drip into the cavern, and I don't know if you mentioned, but in the cavern there are all these circles mm-hmm. surrounding the totem, and it's the seven, like, circles, mm-hmm. and – the blood drops and the drops spread and spread and spread to all of the circles. We then watch as once again, the color, the colors change and we go from this very, very dark blue gray coloring to suddenly a golden warm light that starts shining just beyond Ophelia's head. And we hear a voice tell Ophelia, come my daughter. And Ophelia wakes up, in a beautiful red dress inside a beautiful golden palace. We also see that she has these red shoes on, which I'm sure is a reference to Wizard of Oz with Dorothy's red shoes. Mm. And we see her father sitting on his throne, telling her that spilling her blood was the last 
task. She then sees her mother, like her actual mother, on the throne next to him. And the fawn comes out and tells her that she chose well, you know, to spill her own blood over someone else's. Mm -hmm. Carmen then tells Ophelia to come sit on the throne next to her. Her father has been waiting for so long. We see back on Earth, Ophelia stops breathing and Mercedes cries on her chest. We hear a voiceover saying, and it is said that the princess returned to her father's kingdom, that she reigned there with justice and a kind heart for many centuries, that she was loved by all her subjects and that she left behind small traces of her time on earth, visible only to those who know where to look. And our final image is of the fig tree mm. where, the, where you know she had defeated the frog. And we see the branch where she had hung her dress. A flower blooms on it. And the winged insect is also on the branch. The end. Wow. What a movie. <laughs> it's so heavy. I really didn't expect it to be this dark. Mm -hmm. And I guess... It's so hard to say, but I guess it is like real life where it's not necessarily a happy ending, mm -hmm. but it's a mixture of good and bad and like triumph and defeat. Yeah, definitely. It, um, I really, because I didn't know, I kind of went in blind. Like I really didn't know much about the subject matter of this movie. So I didn't even really realize that it was set in an actual historical time period that, like, mm -hmm. we would be kind of on the backdrop of the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War, of the fascist regime that was happening at the time, and how those themes would really, like, interplay with all of the fantastical elements and Ophelia's personal journey. Because her journey is also, like, it, it feels weird to say, but it is also, like, a coming-of-age story for her as well, where she, definitely, you know, is is stepping outside of her childhood of, you know, reading these fairy tales and enjoying them and, you know, having time with her mother. And she's hit with a really harsh reality of like true horrors and atrocities of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like that happens the moment that she meets Captain Vidal and she's like instantly rejected by him just begins that like entire journey of discovery for her of how, how cruel the world can be. Yeah. And you can tell that, Obviously, her mother loves her, and she clearly cared for her father very deeply, and he sounds mm -hmm. like, just when she mentions him, a very nice man, someone yeah. that she regarded very highly, and to have that ripped away from her mm -hmm. to, for this as her fate yeah, is like, um, yeah, like a coming of age, but in such like the worst way possible yeah. where you're just exposed to the atrocious you're exposed to the atrocities of the real world. Mm -hmm. And like in terms of her mother, it shows what happens when, when people are put in a desperate situation and they maybe have to turn to, to somebody who treats them and everyone around them so cruelly just so mm -hmm. that she can survive so that she can provide for her, her daughter and her future child. And then with Mercedes, somebody who has to like, work within this horrible system and serve these awful, awful men 
in order to undermine it from the inside and to mm-hmm. to help those who are trying to do the right thing, you know? It just shows how within these within like a dictatorship all these people have had to find their place in it and a way to to survive and also fight against it in whatever way that they can. Yeah. Um yeah, it's it's like like I said it's a movie that I've just been like thinking a lot about since I watched it and I feel like I want to watch it again. Mhm. I need a break for a sec. Yeah, not not, you it's know. It's so heavy. Not today or tomorrow, but at some point I feel like mm-hmm. if I watch it again, I feel like I'll be able to really dig into all the details that probably yeah. went over my head in a first time viewing, you know, cuz mm-hmm. there are so many layers to this. Even just like the visual storytelling of it has yeah. a, a life of its own beyond the subject matter. Definitely. Definitely. And yeah, I also, I mentioned this earlier, but as we get towards the end of the movie, the the storyline of the fantasy and reality begin to converge more and more. And you realize that uh, she's been so privy to everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. So she knows like, you know, I have to use my mom's poison or mm-hmm. use my mother's, you know, medicine, but yeah. in a high dosage to poison by doll. And she's also an incredibly brave character. Mm-hmm. And even going into the the pale man's like dining room, yeah. she wasn't necessarily scared. It was just that she didn't want to die when he got up and got mm-hmm. close to her, but she's like brave in all of these ways in this fantasy world, but it really reflects how brave she's had to be in the real world. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's also interesting just to think about how even in her fantasies, she can't escape the horrors. Yeah. Her fantasies are equally as horrific as what's happening in her, in her real life. Yeah, and then also interesting to, like, see the dichotomy between these, like, grotesque um, figures, like like the fawn or the fairies that, like, we talked about how we might may assume them to be characters not worthy of trust because of their appearance, mm-hmm. but those being the characters where she sees – where she seeks comfort and she seeks solace and she has more trust in them than, like, you know – the average man around her at the at the mill, you know, or mm-hmm. the the captain who, you know, has a very presentable appearance and he's like a good-looking man, but he is such a a corrupt character that represents all right. evil whereas this the fawn who literally looks like a monster, that's where she can find good and she can find comfort. Yeah, I think they're just such a great web of characterization Mm -hmm. and um, it's clearly an adult movie, but it does evoke that sense of, uh, I mean, it's, it's very much indicative of childhood trauma and, but seeing that trauma through the lens of an adult and like what Mercedes is going through Mm -hmm. versus what Ophelia is going through as a kid. Um, And yeah, I mean, I just thought it was, put together fantastically it's an amazing composition yeah. of the imagery and um the writing and just the way the plot flows i 
simply don't have any critiques <laughs> for the film. Yeah. And also like really incredible performances across the board. I don't feel like there is a, a weak link at any point. And oh yeah. Um, of course our lead carried this movie so incredibly. Like that's a lot of weight to put on such a young child. I think she was eleven when wow. they shot this. Initially the character Ophelia was actually supposed to be younger. She was supposed to be about eight years old, eight or nine. But um, that would be too young. Yeah. Ivana came in and like she's a little bit older, but Del Toro was like she she was Ophelia. So like he rewrote the character to be slightly older. Um, He like changed a couple things. But yeah, no, she she was incredible. Mm -hmm. Incredible, incredible performance. Absolutely. And I guess I'm curious, what would you rate it? Um, like this is a very heavy movie, so not one I'm going to be, you know, popping on all the time. Right, 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 right. But I did really, really enjoy it and it's given me a lot to think about. So I'm going to give it a nine. I was going to give it a nine as well. Yeah. I can't give it a 10 because similarly, I will not be rewatching it. I can't say it's my new favorite just because it's so astonishingly tragic and uh horrible it has so many atrocities but it is a fantastically made film Mm -hmm. i think it got three oscars am i making that up it definitely got nominated for quite a few let me take a look it was nominated for best original screenplay best foreign language film best art direction cinematography makeup and original score and it won for art direction, cinematography, and makeup. There you go. Yeah. This is a good – this is a really good one. And also I feel like the perfect jumping off point as we head into October. And I guess we can let you guys know that for October, we're actually doing um, – all independent horror films. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Because luckily it is a genre that is ripe with indies that are not struck work. Mm-hmm. And you'll be surprised some very big cult classics as well mm-hmm. as some new favorites will be on the lineup. So yeah. that's exciting. I, I really am stoked about our lineup. I think it's going to be it's gonna be a fun, spooky time. Ooh. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you want a little more content from us, you can always join our Patreon. It's just Movies That Raised Us on Patreon. The link is also in the show notes and in our bio on all social media. Where can you find us on social media? Oh my God, on Instagram at Movies That Raised Us. You can also follow us on Twitter at MTRU underscore pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Movies That Raised Us pod. And you can always send us a good old-fashioned email at movies that raised us at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for our first installment of Indie Horror Spooktober. Ooh, how exciting. I'm Mo. And I'm Christina, and our theme song is by Garrett Schmidt. Bye. Bye.